Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. How can the child of God stand up against slander and false accusations? Today we consider a biblical example as we study Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8 through verse 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This section marks the beginning of a very important transition in the history of the people of Christ during their earliest days. To this point, The church has been marked by incredible growth against all odds and all efforts to oppose and impede from without and within. The power and authority of the risen Lord Jesus has been overwhelmingly manifest in the preaching, the miracles, and the general boldness of the apostles, and now we see that power extending into the lives of other Christians. In the last verses, some of the Christians in Jerusalem selected seven men to assist with the special distribution of charity to the Hellenistic widows, and we were introduced to the growth of the Christian message outside of the society of Palestinian Judaism. It's important for us to understand the distinctions between Palestinian and Hellenistic Judaism in order to fully appreciate what was transpiring at this point in the church's history. Palestinian Judaism also called Judean or Hebrew Judaism, referred to the culture of Jews who spoke the Aramaic language, which they called Hebrew, and followed the strictest social conventions of the laws of Moses and of the rabbinical traditions that had grown up to try to preserve the ancient culture of Israel against the influences of foreign invaders, especially the Greeks. Generally speaking, These Jews lived in Palestine or Judea, but sometimes they would go out to live in the nations abroad, and to preserve their identity, they would build special synagogues in the community where they lived that reflected their unique convictions about the Jewish faith and life. It seems that Saul of Tarsus was one of these, although he was born and raised in the Diaspora. He identified himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, whenever he spoke of his upbringing. Conversely, there were other Jews who accepted Hellenization, that is, the efforts of 
the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great to impose Greek language and culture on the whole world. They spoke the Greek language, they used the Greek translation of the Old Testament in their teaching and worship, and they lived in a way that was more accepting of the customs and culture of the Gentiles. This did not mean that they weren't devout or dedicated to their Jewish faith, however, and many of them came to live in Jerusalem and other parts of Judea, but they retained their Hellenistic culture and their language, and consequently, they had to establish their own synagogues in distinction from the Hebrew synagogues. Some of these Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem had become Christians, and from these, the seven had been selected to care for the widows of the same background. But even as faith in Christ was invading this community, opposition to Christianity swelled up in it in response. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith, or more accurately, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was one of the seven deacons from the earlier narrative. He was named first in that list, and the sterling qualities of spirituality and nobility that qualified him and his brethren for their service were attached to him specifically and extended to the others only by implication. Full of grace is similar to the description assigned to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 27, and it means to be highly favored or beloved. Certainly, Stephen was greatly beloved by his brethren, and as we shall see in time, even many of those who were not his brethren, but in this case, the meaning seems to be that he was highly favored by God, and God blessed him with abundant and extraordinary gifts to empower his service. This is the first mention of anyone other than the apostles doing great wonders and signs by the power of the Holy Spirit during the Christian era. In the coming chapters, we will learn that Stephen would have received this power through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and the increase of these spiritual gifts in the church clearly demonstrated God's intention that the Christian message and movement was ready to expand beyond even the rapidly growing circle in which it had previously been focused. Stephen would have been especially qualified and talented not only to serve the widows of the Hellenists, but to preach and to reason among them concerning the gospel. He was intimately familiar with the language and expressions through which they had learned the word of God in the Greek translations we call the Septuagint. Furthermore, although the Hellenist Jews shared the conviction of their Hebrew brethren that only those who kept the law of Moses could be right with God, a conviction that we will see clearly manifest in the next few verses, The ministry to them was a step closer to Gentile inclusion than any that had previously been taken, and it allowed for, in fact, it made inevitable, clearer statements in the preaching of the gospel about God's universal purpose through Jesus Christ. The miraculous ministry of Stephen made his preaching impossible to ignore. So verse 9 begins a series of statements about a chain reaction ignited by this work, each of which opened with the words, then, and, and they also, meaning that all of the things which follow constituted a concerted response to what Stephen was doing and preaching. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, 
Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. This was evidently one of the Hellenist synagogues, perhaps even the synagogue of which Stephen was a member, before his conversion to Christ. It was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, probably because it was established by Jews who had previously been enslaved and taken to some remote land where they were Hellenized by the influences of the local society, but after being emancipated, returned to Judea. It may also have been built by proselytes to Judaism who were released from slavery upon their conversion. According to some scholars, that was fairly common because the tenacious adherence to the unusual customs of their faith made Jews undesirable as servants in other societies. Whatever the case, uh, these were Hellenist people, and Luke says that they had come from North Africa and from parts of Asia, including that in which Saul of Tarsus was raised. Very likely, Stephen was at first given the opportunity to preach in the synagogues, just as would be the custom of the apostles and Christian evangelists as they traveled throughout the world in subsequent years. But Luke says some of the men from this synagogue arose disputing with Stephen. This probably means that they stood up to debate against his preaching during the synagogue service when he was speaking, and perhaps they sought opportunities to oppose him in other synagogues as well. This was the first stage of opposition and response. However, Verse 10 reports that it was unsuccessful, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. The wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke may simply refer to his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and the natural energy and zeal with which he shared it, but it more likely refers to some of the spiritual gifts that he possessed. Perhaps he had what the Apostle Paul called the word of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, which inspired him with just the right responses, both in his attitude and his argument, to everything they brought against him. But if that's the meaning, it's no wonder that the opponents found it impossible to resist his work. Thus, verse 11 introduces the second stage of the attack. Then they secretly induced men. The word Luke uses indicates that they bribed some base and wicked men to lie specifically to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Evidently, these things were at first spread by gossip, just whispered and passed around in personal conversation in hope to discredit Stephen's reputation and prevent him from being invited to speak in the synagogue any longer. Speaking blasphemous words, irreverent, impious, or reproachful expressions against Moses and God, was a generic enough charge it would be hard to disprove or respond to. But if it were true, of course, it would have rightly disqualified Stephen from being taken seriously by any godly listener. The apostles and prophets of Christ consistently identified the primary quality of a false teacher as despising authority and speaking even of God himself in a way that was irreverent and demeaning. For anyone who knew Stephen's character and was familiar with his life and his actual preaching, they would likely have rejected these rumors out of hand. Incidentally, this accusation is different from anything we have heard so far against the apostles. In earlier trials, the opposition came from the Sadducees, who controlled the temple complex and 
They centered on the Christian preaching of the resurrection of Jesus, a doctrine which the Sadducees strongly denied. Now the attacks are coming from and in the synagogues, which were controlled by the Pharisees, and these attacks more closely resemble the kind of assaults that the same party made against Jesus himself. Thus, the attacks advanced to the third stage, verses 12 through 13. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So now, like the apostles and the Lord Jesus before them, Stephen has been arrested, placed on trial before the Sanhedrin, and false witnesses have been gathered to testify against him. Most likely, Stephen's attackers were not intending to have him executed. The Jews were not legally permitted to put anyone to death. The execution of Jesus, for example, was something that just so happened to be possible because of a perfect confluence of circumstances that can only be attributed to the providence of God. And when they did take it on themselves to kill anyone, it was a serious offense that caused them all kinds of problems. And we should keep that in mind as we continue to work through this account. So we may suppose that the purpose of this trial was to have Stephen stigmatized as a heretic who should be expelled from the synagogue and not allowed to teach the people anymore. For the bulk of our remaining time, I want to consider the accusations made against Stephen. We should remember, of course, that Luke calls these false witnesses. So on the whole, these accusations are lies. But most of the time, false accusations are wrapped around and intertwined with an element of truth. This is what makes this kind of slander so hurtful and destructive. It's often difficult and complicated to delineate between the reality and the lie. However, it is worth the time and effort for us to do so in this case so that we can better understand the true nature of apostolic preaching. Stephen was accused of not ceasing to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law of Moses. So these accusations are an echo and elaboration of the gossip they had spread earlier. Jesus had earlier noted that the temple was so closely related to God being the place where he dwelt and manifest his presence on earth that to make an oath by the temple was the equivalent of making an oath by the name of God. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, Matthew 23, 21. So the argument was that if Stephen was blaspheming the temple, he was blaspheming God. Similarly, when they had earlier accused him of blaspheming Moses, we discover that they were referring to the law he delivered, and calling the law Moses for its lawgiver was a fairly common way of describing it among the Jews of that time. You can see an example in Acts chapter 15 and verse 21. But what exactly was Stephen preaching that they took to be blasphemous? They accused him of saying that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to Israel. Did Stephen say that 
Jesus would destroy the temple? Now, we have no record of him or any other apostle preaching that, at least in those words. Now, at his own trial, Matthew 26, 61, false witnesses used Jesus' words that were in reference to his body, his death and resurrection in John 2, 19, to claim that he had made some plot against Jerusalem to tear down the temple and build another one in its place. And that accusation remained a major fuel to the fire of hatred and rage against him, even to the time when Jesus was hanging on the cross, according to Matthew 27, verse 40. But the irony of this whole affair was that the accusers had missed the actual predictions that Jesus and other prophets had truly made against the temple, and were twisting a prophecy of his resurrection to mean something that it never really did. In fact, Jesus had publicly predicted the destruction of the temple and all Jerusalem with it in Matthew 23, 39, and in a private discourse with his disciples in Matthew 24, 1-35, Mark 13, 5-31, and Luke 21, 5-33, he described the circumstances leading up to its fall with enough specificity and clarity that his disciples were able to escape with their lives when the prophecy came to pass in A.D. 70. Before Jesus, John the Baptist had predicted the desolation of Jerusalem by the Messiah, what he called a baptism in fire of all those who would not repent and submit to him. John said, the Messiah is coming. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, and he will gather the wheat into his barn, that is his kingdom, but he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. He's referring there to God's judgment against unbelieving Israel. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. And the apostle Peter quoted the prophet Joel in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, announcing that following the outpouring of the Spirit, the second great sign of the last days that the Messianic age had been inaugurated and Messiah had received his kingdom would be judgment against those who rejected him in Israel, and he described it under the apocalyptic images of blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's Acts 2, verses 19 through 20. And all of these images use the ancient language of prophetic oracles against nations to foretell the fall of Jerusalem. It's very likely that this announcement continued in the preaching of the evangelists like Stephen. But the falsity of the accusation was that these predictions were blasphemous against God. In fact, these were merely prophetic announcements from God himself against those who had broken his covenant and killed his son. The destruction of the temple would not be an act against God, because through the work of Jesus, a new and more glorious temple had been erected, the Church of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. In the Messianic age, God is worshipped in a way that is most appropriate and pleasing to his nature, in spirit and in truth, rather than in fleshly ordinances and symbols, John 4 and verse 24. And because of that, the time now is when it is not necessary to journey to Jerusalem to worship the Father, says Jesus in John 4 and verse 21. The temple of God is wherever the congregation of his people 
come together to praise and worship him. The second accusation was that Stephen taught Jesus would change the customs which Moses delivered to Israel. There can be no doubt that, in a sense, this was true. Things changed. The apostles did not bind circumcision on any person who sought to become a participant in the covenant blessings of the Messiah, according to Galatians 5 and verse 6, in spite of the fact that circumcision was required under the law of Moses, Genesis 17.12 and Leviticus 12.3. The apostles did not bind Sabbaths or any of the other ancient festivals on Christians, Colossians 2.16-17, in spite of the fact that they were bound under the law of Moses, Leviticus 23. The apostles taught that all Christians are priests, ministers of God's holy sanctuary, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, in spite of the fact that the law of Moses taught that priests could only come from the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, Numbers 3 and verse 3. And the apostles taught all of these things because Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, gave them these teachings from his people, John 16, verses 12 through 15. These were the things which they were binding and loosing on earth, because they had already been bound and loosed in heaven. The writer of the great epistle to the Hebrews made it very clear that through Jesus Christ had come a change in his law, a change in the priesthood and a change in the covenant. Hebrews 7 verses 12 through 14 and 8 and verse 13. However, it was not right to call these teachings blasphemy against Moses' law, In fact, Moses' law itself foretold the coming new law of the Messiah, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19, and was designed to prepare Israel for its instruction and give way to its authority once all things were fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, 19 through 25, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and Luke 24, 44-47. So there was a kernel of truth wrapped in lies with the intent to destroy Stephen's good work. Yet God always has a way of making evil intentions a platform for good. One undeniably accurate aspect of the accusation against Stephen was that he did not cease to speak. No matter how he was opposed, oppressed, attacked, and aggrieved, He continued his work for the Lord Jesus. As the charges were read against him, Luke reports in verse 15, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. This is a fascinating statement that has been variously interpreted and understood by commentators in many different ways, but I believe that J.W. McGarvey made the right sense of it. The expression describes the aura of meekness, resoluteness, and divinely given peace that the servant of God may portray in the hour of greatest crisis. After all, what is an angel? An angel is not simply some mystical, spiritual, haloed creature. An angel is a messenger of God. And on those relatively rare occasions when humans encountered angels face to face in the Bible, The response on the part of humans was always fear and dread and uh, being awestruck and full of wonder. There was something 
awesome and terrible about being in the presence of a just one who could not be shaken or deterred from his task. And even now, in the very court that condemned God's Son to death, this messenger of God ceases not to speak, but readies himself to defend the honor of that very Son who lives again and reigns forever, knowing that he is justified by the power of Jesus Christ whatever the court may say against him. Gossip, lies, slander, and false accusations are the tools of the wicked one, and really it's all he has in the face of God's unassailable word. When we preach the gospel, we can expect these sorts of things to be brought against us. But remember, when they do come, when they are brought, remember Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The adversary's devices all fail and falter when the people of Jesus Christ stand faithful and firm and put their trust in him. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our Goodwill. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. 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 Not a burden we bear. Not a burden we bear. Not a sorrow we share. Not a sorrow we share. But a toil he doth richly repay. Richly repay. Not a grief nor a loss. Not a grief nor a loss. Not a frown or a cross. Not a frown or a Blessed if we trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. for there's no, no other way, way, no way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Trust and obey.